This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, tonight, thank you um, to everyone in attendance uh, to this lecture. And um, welcome to the first of our orthopedics series uh, lectures. Uh, tonight, I'll be speaking on the conservative management of low back pain. Uh, I have no disclosures. The objectives of the presentation today are to go over the epidemiology of low back pain in the general population, uh, review relevant spinal anatomy, discuss common causes of low back pain. Uh, then we'll go over key parts of a spine evaluation that one would expect in a clinic visit to help assessment, as well as determining factors for wor further workup and ordering advanced imaging. Then we'll discuss significant characteristics of lumbar disorders, including axial pain, as well as pain that radiates from the spine uh, to the leg. And then we'll finish with a discussion of management of low back pain and then summarize uh, what we've discussed. Uh, low back pain is a common health problem with an estimated 50 to 85% of adults experiencing at least one episode of back pain during their lifetime. Despite several peer-reviewed published studies on the prevalence or incidence of low back pain, there's still little consensus regarding its epidemiology and its risk factors, partly due to the different definitions uh, groups use to study low back pain, the different etiologies of low back pain, and the different methods taken by these published um, studies. Um, here, I'll present uh, findings from a recent 2019 study of patient-reported low back pain in North America and various European countries. And it's been estimated that up to 7% of the population will develop low back pain annually in these countries. And at any given time, up to 20% of the population has low back pain. However, other studies have reported incidence rates as high as 28% and prevalence as high as 82%. Uh, these values likely differ based on the different methodology and study populations used for data collection. Uh, the point prevalence in a different study of uh, low back pain conducted and published in 2017 was estimated to be about 7.5% of the global population or around 577 million people worldwide. Uh, low back pain is the leading cause of disability worldwide with a burden that has increased by over 50% from 1990 to 2015, primarily due to the overall decline in mortality and the increase in life expectancy with modern healthcare. Uh, resulting in an aging global population and expansion of non-fatal burden of loss of health and injury, which has amounted to an estimated 65 million years lived with disability globally uh, by 2017. Um, this is associated with increases in healthcare expenditure and insurance costs, uh, missed days from work, and reduced work productivity. Back pain is one of the most common causes for patients to seek emergency care and it is also the most common reason for workman's compensation and lost work hours and productivity. In 2016, uh, a published study uh, looking at among 154 conditions uh, demonstrated that low back pain and neck pain had the highest amount of healthcare expenditure in the U.S. with an estimated $134.5 billion. Uh, this was followed second by musculoskeletal conditions other than spine pain, diabetes, and uh, heart disease. So low back pain afflicts all ages from adolescents to the elderly, 
uh, with incidents known um, to increase with increasing age. Among risk factors, studies have reported that the odds of low back pain uh, was higher in male patients than in females with an odds ratio greater than one with a very wide range from 1.1 to 17.3. While for certain age groups, it was females that were more likely to report low back pain and present to a, a medical provider. Uh, risk factors for developing spine pain are multidimensional. Uh, race and genetics, intensity of physical activity, uh, spinal load, activities that involve lifting, bending, or twisting, uh, low socioeconomic status, including low education level, poor general medical health, including increased uh, body mass index, a uh, affected psychological state, uh, especially with depressed mood, um, and occupational and environmental factors such as low job satisfaction, uh, monotonous tasks at work, working with heavy weights, lengthy periods of standing or forward bending, uh, all contribute to the risk of experiencing low back pain. Uh, but what constitutes low back pain? The uh, global burden of disease studies have defined low back pain as pain in the area on the posterior aspect of the body from the lower margin of the 12th ribs to the lower gluteal folds with or without pain that refers into one or both of the legs lasting for at least a day. Uh, low back pain is frequently classified based on several clinical characteristics, among which is the duration of symptoms, where acute back pain is often defined as lasting less than four weeks, subacute lasts from four to 12 weeks, and chronic back pain lasts over 12 weeks. Uh, many patients do not present for medical care for acute low back pain as it typically resolves on its own without intervention. About 20% of those with acute back pain do go on to develop chronic back pain. However, even under these circumstances, it's reassuring that fewer than one in three people living with chronic back pain have associated substantial restriction of participating in work, social activities, and self-care uh, for six months or more. Often in clinic, we're asked, what is causing my back pain? Uh, for about 85 to 95% of people, so a majority of people presenting to primary care providers with low back pain, they do not have a specific identifiable um, origin of their pain, uh, and only a small proportion have a well understood, uh, understood uh, systemic pathologic cause. The etiologies of back pain differ depending on the patient population, and for the most part, the majority of patients have mechanical or musculoskeletal uh, back pain, meaning pain that arises intrinsically from the spine, intervertebral discs, or surrounding soft tissues, and which is often nonspecific, meaning it could be a combination of uh, the above structures. And the proportion of people presenting to primary care with a serious pathologic cause of low back pain that's associated with what we consider red flag symptoms that requires more than conservative spinal care is low. And uh, for certain uh, conditions, it's estimated to be about 5% for um, inflammatory spondyloarthropathies, which means um, an underlying uh, rheumatologic or inflammatory condition. It uh, ranges up to about 4.5% for folks presenting with uh, vertebral fractures due to low bone density. Uh, about less than 1% end up presenting and, and uh, turning out to have a cancer that underlies their back pain. 0.04% end up with cauda equinin syndrome, which is compression of the nerve roots as they originate at the bottom end of the spinal cord. And even less than that present with uh, infections that uh, underlie their spine pain. So as an example on the right half of the screen, 
this lumbar x-ray is from a patient of mine who presented with chronic ongoing right low back pain that uh, inhibited this patient from uh, working and studying and, and uh, concentrating, but uh, whose x-ray images were completely normal. And the radiologist read this as normal. Um, and we continue uh, with the management of ongoing back pain for uh, this type of nonspecific or musculoskeletal uh, type of back pain. So here we'll review the spinal anatomy and uh, there's physiologic curvature at all parts of the spine. Namely, uh, we separate the spine into three distinct portions, cervical being the upper part at the neck, thoracic being where the lungs um, occur, and lumbar, which is the lower back. Uh, there's a physiologic curve at each of these levels, a natural lordosis, which means a curvature backwards along the seven cer cervical vertebrae, a curvature forwards uh, called kyphosis at the 12th thoracic vertebrae, and again, lordosis at the lower uh, five lumbar vertebrae before reaching the tailbone called the sacrum or coccyx. The spinal column is designed to protect the spinal cord towards the upper portion, roughly from the uh, mid-back to the lower, from the neck all through the mid-back down to the lower part of the back. Um, here are the relevant bony anatomy parts of a vertebral body. Without going to specific detail about each of the bony parts of this um, anatomy, I'll just point out the relevant portions that might refer to um, the clinical aspects of our talk here. Um, I'll point out here that between each of the vertebral bones, there are processes of the bone allowing it to interface uh, at another part behind the disc alongside of the spinal cord with uh, another bony part coming from the vertebral body, either above it or below it. And these are um, facet processes. These are joints in the spine. You'll note that here where the cursor is, is the intervertebral disc, which we'll be talking about further in this discussion. And along the center part of the column, the bones form a tunnel where the spinal cord and the spinal nerve roots travel from head to toe which we refer to as the central canal. And at each particular level, adjacent to the level of the disc, we'll have yet another opening or channel where the spinal nerve roots of each level exit out of the central canal. This will be called uh, the neural foramen. Uh, between the vertebral bodies, the uh, load-bearing intervertebral discs um, occur, also are supported by um, ligaments, and together with the bony structures, all of these um, elements house and protect the spinal cord and nerves. Uh, and then exterior to the spinal column that we just showed, supporting the spinal column are muscles of what is referred to as the core, uh, which, we, which serves to protect and then stabilize that spinal column and also um, allow uh, one to produce dynamic motion. Uh, core muscles, when weakened or atrophied, often associate with greater low back pain or the onset of low back pain. And these are actually key muscles uh, targeted for conditioning and strengthening and stretching uh, through physical therapy. So one might hear a lot of uh, therapies referring to the core. And these muscles include the erector spinae in the back, uh, quadratus lumborum along the, the sides of the spine on either side. 
a psoas muscle that runs on either side towards the front um, that also activates with um, bending the hip or bringing the hip up. And then in the uh, abdomen or abdominal wall, you'll find several layers of muscle, which will, um, you know, referred to as transversus abdominis, external obliques, internal obliques, uh, rectus uh, abdominis in the front, which folks know as the, the abs. And then um, the core also includes the buttock muscles or the gluteus muscles, as well as particular muscles along the side of the um, of the ribs, the latissimus dorsi. So here's a table showing in broad categories the common causes of low back pain that you might commonly consider uh, broken down by age group, starting with pre-adolescent population or developmental issues such as uh, scoliosis, infection, tumor, or trauma. In the adolescent or teenage population, common causes of low back pain include uh, trauma such as uh, spondylolysis, which is a fracture of a portion of, uh, of the spinal uh, element near those joints in the posterior part of the spine that results in um, commonly associated uh, alignment issues, as well as spinal development issues that affect the curve of the spine, um, such as having a, a low back spine with, too, with the arch that is too, too great. Um, adolescents can also have disc pain, uh, and it'd be important for uh, this group of uh, patients to make sure that we don't miss any of the inflammatory or rheumatologic issues. Uh, leading causes of low back pain in the adult population are commonly re uh, related to the disc, uh, mechanical uh, or nonspecific pain yet again, and arthritis. And in the elderly, frequently disc herniation, arthritis, uh, spinal stenosis, which we'll be discussing a, a little later in the talk, and other more concerning red flag conditions that we mentioned previously. Uh, so here we'll go through um, key parts of an evaluation that uh, one might find if they present to a uh, spine clinic. And so um, a lot of time will be spent on taking the history, um, describing how the back pain occurred, what was the mechanism, uh, of injury? Was there a lifting injury? Was there a trauma? Was there a motor vehicle accident? Uh, might there be a history of um, low back pain already preceding this? But oftentimes, if there is a um, degenerative process with uh, folks who are a little, little older in age and um, undergoing arthritic conditions, uh, they might incur uh, impingement or contact of one of their nerve roots uh, due to restriction of space where they exit without having any trauma or um, preceding event. And that just might uh, occur due to um, just the passage of time. Uh, we'll make note of other medical history, taking, making sure to not miss red flags. Also making note of uh, surgical history, especially prior spine surgeries or hip surgeries, and then um, document their occupational history for the patient taking note of any work-related demands, any demands requiring um, uh, lifting or prolonged sitting at a desk that might be one of those risk factors we discussed about uh, precipitating low back pain. We'll also um, ask about what is the quality of the pain? And this, this description is actually fairly important for us to help determine um, the nature of where that pain might be coming from. That will be one of the earliest clues and we uh, categorize the quality 
possibly into two possible sources. Either it's related to a nerve that's being irritated, which we'll refer to as neurogenic, and some folks refer to as neuropathic. The quality of, of that type of pain often is described by folks as burning, electric, shooting, or buzzing. Of note, if it's related to nerve root compression caused by an acute disc herniation, the pain might uh, change over time, initially presenting with low back pain, followed by pain going down the leg. And then if it's more of a degenerative condition where the, the canal, the tunnel where the spinal cord travels from head to toe is, becomes restricted, um, that might also um, present with not only back pain, but stiffness and a uh, lower, extremity taint, uh, lower, lower extremity pain in both legs. The other type of pain that we um, categorize pain would be nociceptive, which is the general pain other than or different than nerve pain. And that could be described as achy, deep, throbby, sharp, stabby even, stiffness. And we think about possibly that coming from joints such as arthritis, uh, which commonly affects uh, right down the middle of the spine and uh, also accompanied by stiffness. So the description of the pain uh, folks provide in clinic is fairly important to help us determine what's the cause. The other part that is important to help us determine where uh, pain or what are the structures causing pain is coming from is um, where if the pain ref uh, in relationship to the spine. Um, so is it strictly in the spine, which we refer to as axial spine? Um, and that could be related to disc pain or facet joints or even muscular and connective tissue pain. Or does the pain uh, travel um, from the spine and go elsewhere to other parts of the body, commonly the buttock or to the flanks, in, in, which, in which case we'll think about um, joint pain or sacral pain, um, or even think about other um, parts of the body that's not related to the spine, such as the hips. And a subtle difference between referred pain, which is pain that you feel in a different part of your body other than the spine, is radiating pain, which is commonly associated with nerve pain. And that's a type of pain that travels further down the leg than referred pain typically would. And so in those cases, we think about uh, spinal nerve roots, maybe the nerve roots um, after the eggs of the spine that occur in the buttock or the hip area or uh, peripheral nerves uh, further away from the spine as they travel through the leg that might be um, causing this type of radiating pain. We always can't forget that it's not just about the spine. Sometimes it's about uh, circulation that causes pain in the leg. And so we'll always have to keep our, um, our radar uh, fairly, fairly open to looking for other issues that might be causing uh, leg pain. Other characteristics, that uh, one might be asked during clinic is what worsens the pain? What are the postures and the activities that make your pain feel worse? For example, if it's bending forward and it causes worse pain uh, through sitting, um, that increases pressure on the discs. Um, increased pressure can also come from coughing. And we, we often think about activities such as those as um, aggravating disc pain. However, if the pain is aggravated by uh, arching backwards or Twisting, we'll commonly think about a central stenosis. Um, and that might not necessarily be a, an active extending backwards, but a passive extension of the back as one would walk down a, a hill, for example, that requires the, patient, the person to lean backwards. 
um, will often, you know, include um, cervical, sort of the neck range of motion uh, as part of um, this, this sort of a description of pain. And if pain is brought on, even down in the legs, we'll, we'll have to keep our, um, you know, again, radar open to the possibility that some pain is, is coming from the neck. Particular activities that might aggravate joints, such as the sacrum, uh, specifically might be uh, sitting or standing up from a sitting position. And that, that um, makes us uh, consider the spine at the lowest part, which is the, the sacral part that interfaces with the pelvic bone. It's important to factor in the patient's mood. Uh, if they have an underlying mood issue that they're seeing psychology or psychiatry for, such as um, depression or anxiety or uh, past history of trauma, as we mentioned this as a risk factor earlier on in this talk, that actually might amplify their experience of pain. Uh, if sleep is poor, uh, pain might be uh, experienced at a greater intensity as well. We'll look for associated factors in the extremities if they're affected. So if they're having leg pain, we also want to know their swelling there, skin changes, sensitivity, touch, temperature, color changes, um, to rule out other more complex nerve-related pain. And then the red flags. Um, red flags are key to make sure that we don't miss more uh, severe or serious conditions. And red flags also indicate we might have to involve other types of providers and think about if we need to uh, involve surgeons as well. So these include focal weakness, leg buckling, or legs you know, giving out during walking, or sensation of leg heaviness or fatigue. Discoordination could be a subtler, a more subtle form of weakness. Um, one might notice tripping instead of just the leg giving out. Um, they may experience falls for uncertain reasons and not making that connection that it's related to the spine. Other condition or uh, other uh, symptoms of neurological um, deficit are sensory loss. So um, folks might feel that one part of their leg just doesn't feel certain things that touch it as well as the other part of the leg. Uh, there may be loss of control of bowel or bladder function, pain or numbness in the groin area. Uh, we will also take note of if their patient has a history of cancer that raises our suspicion to look for uh, the possibility that cancer has spread. They might experience constitutional symptoms such as fever, chills, sweats, unexplained weight loss or pain occurring only at night uh, without those aggravating uh, maneuvers or postures that we mentioned earlier. We want to know if there's recent um, surgery or a recent uh, injection that might have um, been, might be associated with a, uh, a source of infection. And then we always ask about if there's a history of trauma, such as a motor vehicle accident. Um, to help us come up with a better plan or a uh, management of low back pain, we'll, we'll uh, often review medications, uh, what's been tried in the past, what folks are taking currently, what's worked, what are the side effects that uh, folks have experienced that don't make um, particular medications good choices to repeat. Uh, if folks have done prior interventions or injections, how much physical therapy they have tried, uh, exploration of complementary or alternative medicines. I won't go through too much of the physical exam, but it includes a combination of um, palpation of parts of the spine that might cause pain to identify 
uh, focal areas. We'll go through a neurological exam testing for strength, sensation, and reflexes that might help us identify where along the spine um, symptoms might be coming from. And then we'll apply certain maneuvers to um, test out the nerves, namely that we might cause certain tension or irritation of the nerves that commonly um, end up reproducing the patient's uh, leg pain uh, to, to help uh, rule in uh, or rule out um, that the nerve is involved. So moving on to lumbar disorders, uh, we'll, be, we'll be starting with axial lumbar pain, which is pain that occurs uh, along the spine, uh, down the midline, maybe off to either side of that midline, but doesn't really travel that far as far as out to the thighs or down the legs. So this is called uh, axial lumbar pain. Disc pain can, can be one uh, source of pain that um, really occurs right at the, the midline or along the sides of the spine. Um, it can be associated with any strain or injury to the disc, including uh, the occurrence of a disc bulge or herniation, as well as uh, the process over time of disc degeneration. Uh, pain can be felt as deep and sharp and refer sometimes to the sides of the spine or to the flanks or even to the hips. Uh, pain is aggravated by flexion, like bending forward in a seated position uh, or even lifting. Another source of pain can come from those uh, joints that interface between two uh, vertebral bodies uh, behind the spinal cord called the facets, and this is facetogenic pain. It's commonly a uh, arthritis of the facet joint or uh, a stress um, across the joint. It accounts for between 5 to 15% of cases of chronic axial low back pain. Facet joint pain may be due to not only increased compressive stress, as one might imagine with other large joints, such as the knee or the hip, but also facet joint capsular stretch and distension. Uh, most commonly, facetogenic pain is the result of repeated stress uh, or low-level trauma that accumulates over a lifetime, leading to inflammation and stretching of that joint capsule uh, as uh, possibly the, the, the shape of the joint changes. And there's uh, insidious onset. Um, predisposing factors include uh, a malalignment of the spinal column called spondylolisthesis or um, degenerative disc disease. And we'll be describing that in a, in, a, uh, in a few more minutes. Trauma, such as a motor vehicle accident with rapid deceleration, uh, especially if um, there's a seatbelt that um, restricts parts of the low spine, may cause lumbar facetogenic pain, most involving the lowest level at L5-S1. And the mechanism of injury of these cases is often a combination of flexing too far forwards or bending too far forward, uh, stretching of the spine uh, and rotation of the spine. The most frequent complaint um, of facet pain is right down the spine. However, uh, facet pain can also refer or be uh, felt to refer to the flank, uh, the hip, and the thigh. Uh, studies in the past have demonstrated that facet joint pain when tested under research settings and healthy volunteers, either by injecting into the joint of the, the facet joint or stimulating the sensory nerves of that facet joint, um, that pain can refer to these general patterns um, um, in the legs, uh, to the groin, the hips, uh, lateral thighs, most especially for the upper lumbar joints. 
and to the lateral and posterior thigh, which is the side and the backside of the thigh for the lower lumbar joints. Abdominal and pelvic pain even have been described. Infrequently, the lowest two levels of the lumbar spine with facet pain may actually reach the lower leg and the foot that mimics uh, sciatic pain. Facet pain uh, on exam, when we see patients, um, may actually um, present also with tenderness when we palpate the spine along the sides of the spine. Um, pain can also be reproduced with having uh, folks extend and rotate backwards, uh, tilting to the side, or even brought on by flexing uh, forward um, very deeply. So associated with facet joint pain and uh, irritation of those joints may be um, a reactive process. Often we find that folks that have facet pain might have muscular pain, uh, which is a reflex or a spasm of that uh, muscular um, core area that um, protects the spine. Um, these often inf involve muscles called the multifidus along the sides of the spine on either side, the left or the right, as well as the quadratus lumborum muscle that we refer to that are a little further away from the sides of the spine on either side. Um, the hallmark of myofascial pain is the presence of uh, palpable knots, which we refer to trigger points. It's a taut muscular band um, that runs along the, the direction of the, of the muscle itself. It can often refer pain in a defined pattern spontaneously uh, or after uh, one pushes on that muscular knot and the, the person feels pain not only under where um, it's pushed, but also into referred patterns away from um, that knot. So for example, on this image, if the knots occur in this quadratus lumborum muscle where the X's are, sometimes they have characteristic referral patterns to um, the buttock. Moving on from axial lumbar pain is uh, radicular uh, pain, which means the pain that travels um, and radiates uh, down the leg. Um, radicular pain often indicates irritation or impingement of spinal nerve roots, uh, presents with not only back pain, but also pain going down the leg, and it frequently affects the lower extremity in a distribution um, that maps to known patterns associated with a nerve root, as shown in this schematic on the right. Um, there have been um, uh, regular distinct patterns that uh, we use to identify which nerve is involved based on where the pain occurs in the leg. However, many people will also have multiple nerve root involvement with their uh, radicular or sciatic pain, and there's considerable overlap of the distribution of patterns of these nerves. Um, for example, you know, if it was very, a, a very clear um, uh, radicular pain affecting the L5 nerve root, um, pain will commonly affect the outer side of the leg and may reach all the way down to the big toe. Usually the more irritated the nerve, the further down the leg the pain radiates. Symptoms um, may be acute, often associated or preceded by a lifting injury or bending or twisting activity or have gradual onset uh, over time. Um, leg pain uh, may be greater than the actual back pain. There may be associated numbness and tingling in the buttock or along the affected um, part of the leg where there's pain. 
one might feel uh, or experience focal weakness that matches that particular affected nerve root. Uh, so for example, if it was the L5 nerve root, there may be focal weakness of um, uh, flexing that big toe upwards. Um, pain may be aggravated by coughing, sneezing, straining, uh, sitting, or bending forward. Uh, especially in the younger patient, typically in the 20s to 40s, um, this radicular pain is typically due to a disc herniation. If local inflammation occurs um, and um, or a disc material affects the local uh, nerve roots, this might uh, then lead to that leg pain. However, the majority of cases of radicular pain caused by a disc herniation are self-limiting. They heal, they can heal spontaneously uh, with symptoms resolving without surgery. Uh, the clinical course of radic radicular pain or uh, radiculopathy varies, uh, as well as the effectiveness of conservative management. So in some patients, the symptoms decline after a week or two, but in other patients, pain may continue for several months to years. However, there can be spontaneous resolution, which is the good news of disc herniations and uh, clinical improvement correlates with and um, a lot of the times precedes the resolution of the disc herniation itself um, that one might notice on a repeat MRI, for example. So although each person's case is unique, sometimes um, uh, pain lasting for years, the favorable prognosis overall of uh, acute disc herniations and radicular pain uh, supports um, our general approach for conservative management, uh, at least for the initial weeks to months for patients presenting with such pain. Uh, there are various degrees of herniation characterized by the dimensions of the herniation and whether or not fragmentation of the disc material occurs into the space. Um, a 2020 study examining whether the size of a, a disc herniation uh, is predictive of the failure of conservative management and the need for surgical intervention within two years um, after an MRI. It showed that the percentage of the spinal canal occupied by a disc herniation uh, had no predictive value of which patients would fail non-operative treatment and which would require surgery. Uh, they found that patients who did not receive surgery had an average herniation size that occupied 31.2% uh, of the canal, uh, while patients who ended up having surgery also had an average herniation size that occupied 31.5. So not much of a big difference um, of the percent occupied by that disc between the two groups. Um, in older populations, narrowing of the space around the nerve root, as we mentioned, related to what we call the neural foramen, where this nerve exits out of the spinal column, can occur to, uh, due to not a uh, herniated disc, but due to degeneration of the disc and degenerative changes um, that are uh, actually associated with flattening of the disc, um, among other changes. So distinct from the mechanism of disc um, uh, herniation, uh, we refer to this as uh, degenerative disc disease or um, uh, disease. It's not necessarily uh, to be uh, considered a disease, but just the fact of aging uh, over time, um, and which can be precipitated by a earlier disc herniation, um, but relates to the drying out of the internal structures of the disc leading to a loss of elasticity or cushioning that the disc provides in the spine and eventual flattening or collapse of the disc, as you see um, in this pictorial um, that 
higher up, you'll see the, the normal disc. And as uh, over time, there may be disc uh, degeneration, bulging, a herniation, the disc thins out, it dries out, the internal material loses some hydration. Uh, as discs um, flatten, a lot of the biomechanical and body weight stresses get passed on to the vertebral bones, as well as the joints in the spine, leading to arthritis and spur formation. Uh, this degenerative change can be prominent at the lowest level, L5-S1 um, here, uh, where you see um, a flatter disc. Uh, on MRI, uh, usually dried or desiccated discs usually have a darker appearance, um, and healthier discs usually have a, a brighter or a grayer um, um, appearance. And so in this particular patient, the MRI shows that the lowest level, L5-S1, um, as well as L4-5, have experienced some uh, desiccation already with the L5-S1 flattening more. So uh, with degenerative disc disease, deterioration of the disc and the spine, um, biomechanical loads, as we mentioned, can transfer to those facets. Those facets can uh, experience arthritis. They can also experience enlargement, uh, which we'll find it has a significance for the next um, lumbar radicular pain disorder. And uh, even some of the ligaments in the posterior parts of the spine can thicken with the aging process and contribute to that particular process. Um, and these can all be associated with axial back pain but they can also lead to narrowing of the spine um, spaces where the nerves exit. So we refer to this as the neural foramen, uh, as well as that central canal where we show that the spinal cord travels down from head to toe. So with central spinal stenosis, there can be more than one level of uh, pain radiating down the legs and not just uh, one particular nerve, but more than one nerve being affected. And in this condition, uh, one might experience sensations of heaviness or fatigue uh, in the leg, often provoked by being upright in a standing or walking activity and uh, improved soon after bending forward or sitting down. I do want to note here on the diagram on the, um, the right-hand side, it shows that on, on the left column, the progression of neural foraminal stenosis, which is a um, side view of the spine where the nerve roots exit out of the spine. You'll see up here that um, the space here is normal, uh, a normal looking space where the nerve root is, which is the dark dot in the center of that space. And as the space narrow or experiences this stenosis, uh, often uh, related to a disc bulge, um, that the space progressively tightens around the nerve at which point um, at, any, at any point along this progression, one might experience focal uh, pain going down the leg. On the right column is um, the progression of central stenosis, where we're looking um, in a cross section of the spine, looking from head to toe. Centrally, I think where all the nerves, uh, nerve roots run at the top is fairly open as the central stenosis progresses. Disc material can push back. The facet joints who experience uh, arthritis can enlarge, in, uh, sorry, enlarge 
Uh, the ligaments that we mentioned here can also uh, thicken, which is this uh, dark uh, portion right here. And so all of which leading to what uh, previously was a circular space that tightens down to a very small triangular space, which, was, which is what we refer to as central stenosis. And all the nerve roots that travel through this tight space um, uh, can be affected, leading to this sensation of heaviness down the leg. So what about management? And so we'll start with um, diagnostics. Uh, these include x-ray images, MRI images, CT scans, uh, electrodiagnostic studies. Uh, given the common positive natural history of acute low back pain, as we mentioned, uh, our medical societies agree that imaging uh, right away is not recommended for most patients with nonspecific mechanical low back pain, uh, especially in the absence of those red flags that we discussed. Uh, the American College of Radiology uh, appropriateness criteria for low back pain recommends imaging only if there is no improvement after six weeks of conservative medical and physical therapies, um, or there is a high suspicion for um, malignancy, fracture, infection, or stenosis. Um, folks might present with radicular pain, but even the presence of pain going down the leg with low back pain is not an indication for early imaging. Um, early imaging with even an x-ray can often be associated with worse outcomes as, um, as it is likely to identify even those small minor abnormalities in, that otherwise are not clinically relevant to the patient's uh, presenting pain. Um, and so it might just end up finding things that, that, um, that show up on the image that you know, otherwise was not affecting the patient. Uh, uh, a randomized controlled uh, trial showed that uh, the early routine use of MRI imaging, um, if, it's too, if it's used too early or too often, can end up increasing um, the, the occurrence or prevalence of um, patients going for spinal surgeries unnecessarily. Um, so it's agreed upon that it's appropriate to begin um, therapy without imaging in adults, especially younger than 50 years, and um, in those older than 50 years, if there's no concern for a systemic um, disease. Lumbar x-ray is often used if we end up um, uh, moving on towards uh, imaging. Uh, it's used to evaluate for uh, spinal alignment. So we want to know if there's any uh, spondylolisthesis. Uh, we often use x-ray to see the curvature in more than one direction to see if there's any scoliosis. We use it to evaluate bony structures for fractures and um, in particular series or a particular protocol, we'll use um, x-rays uh, with patients bending forward and bending backwards to look for stability of the spine. Uh, lumbar MRI or CT is considered advanced imaging. Um, and so it's often used when uh, we're looking at not axial, not just axial lumbar pain, but pain that radiates down the legs. Uh, MRI is, is used very um, effectively to evaluate for soft tissue abnormalities, including the disc, uh, nerve roots. It can also um, find other red flag abnormalities such as tumors. Um, and it, it allows some evaluation of um, how active uh, inflammation might be. For example, in the facet joints, we'll often see some uh, fluid and brightness of that fluid 
in, in affected, uh, affected joints. CT scans are often used to uh, evaluate the bony parts of the spine. Um, they look for bone spurs. It often helps uh, surgeons who are planning um, procedures. Um, it, it can identify calcifications of a disc, and it's often employed when MRI is contraindicated, especially, uh, in, for example, in patients who might have um, metal clips in uh, vasculature or metal implants, such as um, cardiac pacemakers that prevent um, um, patients from undergoing uh, an MRI, which uses a, a very strong magnet that can affect metal. Uh, for nerve conduction studies, uh, we employ these studies to evaluate um, for neural or nerve-related abnormalities. Um, we can use these to confirm the existence of nerve root dysfunction, to also exclude uh, uh, other types of peripheral nerve problems. Often we'll be able to identify with more specificity than on an imaging um, um, uh, study, uh, which might show multiple different findings without actually telling us which nerve root is actually underlying the source of the pain. So we'll use these electrodiagnostic studies to look at um, whether the uh, issue at the spine uh, of the nerve itself is coming from the spine or outside of the spine. We can use this to identify how long the process that is found has been going on if it's an active process or if it's a process that has occurred and now there's um, neural recovery. And so we often use this uh, when the diagnosis is not very clearly coming from the spine. Uh, patients might have lower extremity pain, weakness, sensory changes, MRI um, findings that don't really point to a spinal cause. Um, of note, it's important to, uh, uh, to understand that even if the nerve conduction study um, does not show a, a finding of a nerve being affected, um, it doesn't exclude that the nerve is actually um, um, affected or getting irritated. It just may not be severe enough uh, to result in a, um, an altered electric um, um, signal picked up by the, the imaging uh, or the diagnostic study. Uh, for management, we often employ um, these main areas, including physical therapies, medications, and interventions. So we'll start with uh, physical therapies. Um, in my field of physical medicine and rehabilitation, which uh, has the goal of addressing disability, restoring function, and improving quality of life, uh, part of restoring function means to help with uh, alleviating pain. Uh, with pain being multifaceted, having biologic, psychological, and social influences, as we discussed about risk factors, uh, we often take a multimodal approach um, to the conservative management of low back pain. Um, and so this approach or framework of understanding and conceptualizing pain also underlies um, uh, what I'll mention here is a the detailed approach that a uh, UCSF, um, a huge research effort within our department um, is taking um, called UCSF REACH. Um, and it seeks to study uh, the different types of low back pain, uh, the mechanism of how they occur in order to understand what are the predictors of low back pain and possibly the predictors 
that might influence uh, the effectiveness of therapies that we try uh, to address uh, low back pain with the goal being that we might um, design and formulate very uh, much more specific approaches to addressing particular um, uh, mechanisms of low back pain. So uh, with this multimodal approach, I often use this uh, in my treatment plans, as well as um, uh, ways to discuss and provide education uh, to patients about uh, to help them understand their pain and help them understand the, the management of low back pain. Um, to discuss the management um, that we employ for low back pain, I'd like to kind of switch gears and um, use um, uh, our society guidelines. So namely the, the 2020 guidelines from North American Spine Society for the diagnosis and treatment of low back pain to kind of in a, in a question and answer fashion, go through common questions that patients might have and, and uh, provide um, the recommendations from this, our society uh, backed by the evidence that exists to support um, this uh, approach for managing low back pain. So often in our, in our areas, we use um, evidence um, that comes from research, uh, either clinical studies or uh, reports of um, patient cases to help us get a better understanding uh, of what, what occurs out there as well as a, a better understanding of what one might do to address similar situations that come up. Um, there are different uh, grades of the evidence that then um, can be interpreted as a strength of the recommendation. So just to orientate you on the next few slides, um, the strength of the recommendation uh, will come in uh, categories labeled as A, B, C, or I. A being it is recommended, whatever the recommendation might be. B is the strength of the evidence is um, fair. Uh, so the recommendation is just a suggestion. Um, it could be labeled as C, given that the evidence supporting the recommendation is poor quality evidence. And so um, the recommendation can maybe just be considered, or it could be labeled as I, um, indicating that there's just not sufficient evidence or the evidence that exists is conflicting. So uh, the society can't actually uh, either support or uh, refute that recommendation. So I think maybe the first example might give you um, just an idea of how this might go. So the question would be, uh, if patients undergoing treatment for low back pain, what are the outcomes, including duration of pain, intensity of pain, functional outcomes, and return to work status, if um, one were to employ bed rest versus active exercise? That is a common question that comes up. And so uh, it could be considered uh, this recommendation uh, suggested that patients with acute low back pain, those that exercise more at baseline and use exercise to facilitate recovery, uh, are predicted to have better functional outcomes over time compared to patients who do not exercise or only use bed rest to help with recovery. So it, um, it suggested from this, for example, that exercise uh, is better than bed rest. Other questions are how effective is bracing for low back pain? The evidence is um, 
is insufficient or conflicting evidence uh, that bracing uh, results in improvements in pain and function in patients with subacute low back pain. How effective is self-directed uh, exercise? There's actually pretty uh, good evidence. So the recommendation is that back school is recommended to provide improvements in pain and function when compared with general medical care, modality care, or a simple handout. Um, and outcomes have been followed up to six to 12 months for chronic low back pain. And back schools are educational and, and training programs where uh, lessons are given to patients by a therapist. How effective is the McKenzie method? So the McKenzie method is a physical therapy approach developed in the late 1950s um, by a New Zealand uh, physical therapist, Robin McKenzie, to diagnose and treat musculoskeletal conditions based on um, their clinical presentation and movement patterns and postures. The McKenzie method is an option for the treatment of chronic low back pain. So with uh, labeled as C, that is uh, a suggestion. In the literature itself, the McKenzie method has been shown to have moderate evidence for acute low back pain, um, but it has been shown to make moderate to no difference for chronic low back pain. Um, how effective are heat or cold? So the evidence suggests um, that the use of heat for acute low back pain results in short-term improvements in pain. And what about traction? So in patients with subacute or chronic low back pain, traction is actually not recommended to provide clinically significant improvements in pain or function. So I typically uh, discuss with patients to, um, if they want to pursue traction, to uh, proceed cautiously, probably under the supervision uh, of their physical therapist before um, really employing traction on a regular basis. What is the appropriate timing, frequency, and duration of treatment with physical therapies? So there really have been no studies adequately addressing this question. Uh, often we'll uh, rely on physical therapists um, who see our patients to determine the progress that the patient is making with their exercises. Often it can end up being shorter than anticipated or, or longer than anticipated. Um, often uh, we'll, we'll decide to schedule a follow-up exam probably about six to eight weeks after their visit just to see how their progress is. But there's not a very strong recommendation to uh, really specify that physical therapy needs to be um, exactly, you know, for example, two months. Um, so what are some physical therapy exercises? Um, they commonly focus on strengthening and stabilizing the core muscles, the extensor muscles in the back. Um, those are the ones we discussed at the earlier part of this lecture. Also the buttocks and hamstrings, all to help protect the spine. Uh, PT should also balance the strengthening of these core muscles with flexibility. So especially to uh, relieve excessive tightness in the hamstrings, buttocks, tendons along the sides of the, of the thigh and the hips. So in addition to physical therapies, uh, we have uh, different approaches or physical uh, modalities. And these, uh, this um, is actually a complementary therapy. People often ask about how effective is acupuncture? Um, so in patients with chronic low back pain, the addition of acupuncture to usual care is recommended for short-term improvement in pain and function compared to usual care alone. So there is actually some good evidence that acupuncture can be added to, for example, physical therapy or medications uh, as part of a um, 
uh, a varied approach to address low back pain. How about spinal manipulation? So spinal manipulation is a technique where practitioners use their hand or device to apply controlled thrust to a joint respond to move it uh, more than that joint would move on its own to hopefully relieve some of the stress. Um, it's for often performed by chiropractors, osteopathic physicians, or, or physical therapists as well. Um, so for patients with acute or chronic low back pain, uh, spinal manipulation is an option uh, to, to consider to improve pain and function. Uh, of note, osteopathic manipulation has also been shown to be effective in reducing acute and chronic mechanical low back pain. Um, this would be pursued uh, with osteopathic physicians. And yoga. So it's suggested that for mild chronic low back pain, yoga may offer medium-term improvements in pain and function compared to usual care. Uh, although improvements are not clinically meaningful due to uh, low baseline pain. So we, we often will say that uh, yoga is, um, is, is an alternative, for example, to physical therapy. It is a mind-body exercise. It often employs similar um, postures or stretches and, and strengthening moves um, uh, employed by physical therapy and um, can be explored and aerobic exercise. So aerobic exercise is recommended to improve pain, disability, mental health in patients with nonspecific low back pain in the short term. So we'll often um, try to provide the perspective during patient education to keep moving. Um, don't, uh, don't try to avoid pain by bed rest, but really try to keep moving, but um, uh, try not to push through the pain or try not to push beyond uh, back pain. So aerobic exercise might help loosen things up, might help in, uh, improve flexibility. It, it can often elevate mood, help with sleep. Um, but the literature, it looks like, it shows that there's insufficient evidence for long-term benefit. Um, we'll often uh, have a discussion about how aerobic exercise might help, but really a lot of uh, the targeted therapy uh, uh, should come from a physical therapy that works on strengthening those core muscles to help support the spine. So moving on to medications, uh, what can we use for medications to help with uh, pain? So non-selective anti-inflammatory medications such as ibuprofen uh, or Aleve uh, are suggested for the treatment of low back pain. So NSAIDs uh, are effective for short-term relief of chronic back pain without um, radiculopathy or radicular pain. Uh, but studies have shown no difference between NSAIDs and a placebo um, for radicular symptoms down the leg. So it may help more with uh, the back pain from a disc, but less helpful for pain actually occurring in the leg. We often uh, weigh the, the risks of starting anti-inflammatories uh, given increased risk in the elderly uh, for um, gastrointestinal, kidney, or bleeding risks. Um, uh, studies have also shown that uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen that the, has not provided um, better benefit or superior benefit than placebo. Um, and just to mention that uh, muscle relaxants have also been found in the literature um, to provide more effective pain relief um, in acute pain than in chronic nonspecific low back pain. 
So as we mentioned, if patients come in with uh, facet joint pain uh, tied with uh, muscle spasms, we'll often employ uh, muscle relaxants in combination with a uh, anti-inflammatory medication such as uh, ibuprofen or Aleve. So the next set is medications that uh, you know we use to address nerve pain. So anticonvulsants are a class of medications um, we use, uh, even though they're anticonvulsants, we use those for nerve-related um, pain in certain circumstances. But the evidence is that there's insufficient evidence to make recommendation for or against the use of uh, anticonvulsants for treatment of low back pain. Similar, uh, similarly, for antidepressants, we'll use these. Uh, things like uh, nortriptyline or antidepressants such as Cymbalta, also for nerve pain. Um, and there's pretty good evidence that antidepressants are not recommended for treatment of low back pain. Uh, there is the exception of Cymbalta, especially if the patient um, has um, mood disorders such as depression, that that might actually help with the mood and the experience of pain. And then what about oral steroids? A lot of folks ask about oral steroids. So it's suggested that the use of oral or IV steroids is not necessarily effective for the treatment for low back pain. Um, so again, I think the perspective for um, the, the message from the literature is that this is what has been um, presented and published from um, research. However, you know, I'll have a lot of patients who will anecdotally say that they took the oral steroid and either they had um, really significant pain relief um, often we'll find that their significant pain relief only lasts while they're taking the steroid. Um, but there are some folks that will say that they take the steroid and it got rid of all their pain, even after finishing the course of oral steroids. And then in terms of, uh, short, uh, of short-term opioids, it suggested that the use of opioid pain medication should be cautiously limited and restricted to short durations for the treatment of low back pain. Uh, especially given their increased risk of misuse, abuse, and um, diversion. Uh, and then lastly, interventions is uh, one of the other directions of um, our management of low back pain. To, um, to relay the findings from our uh, North American Spine Society, for all of the interventions, there was insufficient or conflicting evidence so all of the, um, the following interventions were given the label of I. And that's, it's, it, it means to suggest that the evidence is there. People have tried to study it, but there's been a lot of mixed findings. And um, some studies will say that uh, these interventions that I'll present are really, really effective. Other studies say that there was no real benefit compared to placebo. Um, it doesn't necessarily um, make us steer away from interventions, for example, uh, because from our patients, we have um, commonly found that these interventions do end up helping on a case-by-case -case basis um, and even in a general basis. But it's just that the evidence and possibly the way the studies have been designed um, uh, do not have enough power to demonstrate a very strong, significant finding. And, and therefore, the following, I'll just present um, 
uh, the actual literature versus the um, society recommendation. So for example, dry needling is something that we use for muscular pain or myofascial pain. Uh, those trigger points that we talked about. Um, a 2018 meta-analysis of um, randomized controlled trials that, tr that reviewed the effectiveness of dry needling for these myofascial trigger points associated with low back pain found moderate evidence uh, showing that dry needling um, in combination with other therapies could be recommended to relieve low back pain. However, the superiority of dry needling to improve function, such as walking, moving, um, tolerance of daily activities uh, remains unclear. Um, an intervention that we use for targeting facet uh, joint pain that we mentioned are facet injections of steroid. Um, here, a 2015 systemic review looking over uh, a lot of historical literature that exists, comparing among many studies. Uh, looking at the effectiveness of facet joint interventions to provide greater than six months relief of chronic spinal pain, uh, found only level three evidence that it would help um, uh, facet joint pain. So level three means that um, the literature that exists con consists of mostly observations and reports of individual cases versus a very strongly designed um, controlled study. And what about epidural steroid injections? And that is one of the most common injections that we provide to address uh, spinal pain, as well as pain radiating down the leg, radicular pain, or sciatica. Um, a 2012 systemic review looking over uh, studies from over 19, 1966 to 2011 for the effectiveness of these two different types of approaches for epidurals found that for um, Lumbar radicular pain going down the leg, there was good evidence that the uh, epidural steroid injections are effective. Um, but for lumbar radicular pain due to that central stenosis that we mentioned, um, there was only fair evidence. So I, I, I'm not diving too deeply into the literature for these procedures because um, there's just a, a lot of different uh, reports describing uh, variable outcomes. And so this is just to give you a sense of how um, um, the studies look and typically what we might help uh, patients um, uh, understand as part of their management uh, through a discussion that we might have in clinic. So in summary, um, low back pain is very common. It can improve or resolve with proper care and treatment. Uh, there are various causes of mechanical back pain. Uh, early imaging for nonspecific low back pain is not recommended uh, in favor of uh, physical therapies to help with uh, recovery uh, of low back pain. So thank you very much for your attention, and um, I'll be happy to take any questions. Hi, Peter. Thank you for that great talk. Um, I learned so much just listening to him. As you can tell by my intro, he's probably the uh, at least most decorated member of our department as far as degrees go. So I always enjoy hearing Peter's uh, discussion. I'm going to go through the Q&A. Um, there's a question from the audience. What is the meaning of bracing as used on the slide about physical therapy management? Um, yeah, so bracing, that's a great question. Bracing is really the use of a like a low back brace. Um, so that's... You know, I think the term might have been a little confusing, but that really just means 
wearing a back brace. And that could be a soft back brace with uh, elastic band or Velcro um, all the way to like a hard brace. Okay, great. And uh, this is a message. Here's another question. We've got lots of good uh, questions. So thank you everyone for participating. How do the medical societies currently approach um, chiropractic professionals? Are they considered complementary or alternative providers? And to the extent that they become more complementary, any examples that illustrate? Well, I think they, it's, um, I think it, bef I would say it probably um, befalls the definition of complementary and alternative medicines. Um, at least from my perspective, I, I don't necessarily have the answer from the, the medical society, but uh, I, I often end up uh, considering chiropractic therapy as part of physical therapy. And then the alternative and complementary therapies, uh, I generally conceptualize as those coming with a sort of a, a different medical philosophy that hasn't really, um, uh, you know, uh, gained uh, readily sort of ready um, traction within Western medicine. Um, so I, I do, I, I more uh, consider chiropractic uh, therapy as physical therapies. Great. Thank you. Um, here's another question. Can discs be repaired or replaced? And I imagine the insertion of an inflatable tube-like structure. Yeah, there. Um, that's a great question. I think um, more recently uh, we've seen sort of the evolution and the introduction that there are uh, disc replacement uh, procedures. Uh, it's a surgical procedure, so it, it does involve um, disruption of those tissues as part of a surgery. Um, but there are certain specific criteria that the surgeons employ that uh, qualify a patient as a candidate for disc replacement. Uh, often they, they would like to see that there's not a, a, a strong degenerative process going, going on in other parts of the spine of the affected area, such as uh, arthritis. Um, and uh, they, they use disc replacements to kind of recreate the, the same height that the original disc might've had. But I think there's very specific surgical criteria that qualify as a patient for candidacy, candidacy for that. Other than that, I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll uh, end up uh, either uh, addressing a herniation, for example. Um, usually they, they uh, undergo a procedure to remove some of the disc material that might be impinging the, the nerves. Um, you know, so often the discs end up being a, a longer term issue and replacement may not be the, the, the most practical or easiest solution. Okay. And uh, another question from the audience, do products like icy hot or CBD ointment offer any healing properties? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't say uh, I know about healing properties, but they do probably help with the, the pain experience. Um, so I see hot and things like patches, uh, lidocaine, analgesic gels and balms or patches um, can help uh, provide soothing, like a soothing sensation. Um, uh, CBD may, may have other cognitive effects that I think the, the field is probably still trying to characterize and study 
to see whether or not there are other indirect effects that are not accounted for. Um, but I think a lot of the measures that we um, employ and then we have available um, are more for management of symptoms. Okay, and then is there a grade or recommendation on using cold for low back pain? Um, the, the study, I think from the society guidelines didn't really, um, uh, identify that as a particular, um, part of the, 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 evidence, the question that, um, they, they address with the evidence was, uh, whether it was a heat or cold. So meaning like a temperature, uh, modality. So which one of them was better rather than, um, isolating if it was cold alone, but um, generally, uh, I'll advise that uh, heat is, uh, is something very common that I'll advise patients presenting with low back pain. Heat often helps with myofascial pain. And if there's a big um, non-specific component to the low back pain, often muscles play a big role. And folks might actually find that, for example, they found that that, was, uh, that heat helped them even before um, being recommended to use heat, they often find that after taking a hot shower, their back pain feels much better. Um, cold is often used for inflammation, um, sort of to calm down and soothe inflammation or swelling. Uh, so, you know, for example, like arthritis in the knee. So that might help with uh, calming things down. Um, and so sometimes it may be worth employing alternating heat or cold. Um, as part of the, the, the management. Okay, and here's um, kind of on these similar modalities, someone asked about cupping. What, do you have any thoughts on cupping for pain relief? Yeah, I think cupping, um, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say I'm an expert on the, uh, the philosophy or approach to cupping. It falls along the lines of um, the complementary <laughs> medicines, um, often with... Um, uh, the use of acupuncture and practiced by uh, a similar practitioner. Um, it provides some degree of massage to um, the areas of the muscles where the cupping is applied. Um, there's thoughts that it helps with circula increasing circulation and the flow of chi, but that, that goes into um, that sort of um, Eastern, you know, approach if it was sort of um, applied uh, with, with that intention. So, uh, more directly, I think it applies a form of massage. Great. And I, I really like this question. If you, you know, um, a woman asks, hi, would you speak to preventing back disease, please? So that was going to be my question for you. But if you had to say <laughs> top three right. things, if you could say three things to help prevent back pain for our audience out there, what are your top oh, three, yeah. Peter, <laughs> that you would counsel a patient on? Yeah, this is a, is, it is a common question. I would say, um, keep moving. And that, that often translates to in the uh, work setting, um, sit, stand desks are often employed, but it's not about standing. It's not about sitting. It's about changing the position regularly. Um, often people will get back pain with prolonged standing and not just with prolonged sitting. The other is, um, you know, getting good sleep and nutrition. So that, that often sleep is when those discs kind of help to rehydrate and, um, you know, the, the, the more sort of the longer period of the, of the day that you might be uh, offloading those discs from 
the body weight and gravity in, you know, during sleep, um, the better those discs might recover and, and help pre prevent the onset of degeneration. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think um, the other one was, I think, I think I mentioned it together, but I was thinking nutrition. So a lot of it is just trying to stay healthy and maintaining, maintaining a healthy weight. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that ultimately helps with healing and recovery. So, um, exercise, sleep and, and nutrition. That's great. And then the secondary part of that question, um, is, uh, specifically what is dry needling? They have a question about that. Uh, dry needling is a, um, a description of the technique that's used to address the myofascial pain. Um, uh, in the field of, of that area of myofascial pain, dry needling is uh, using a small fine needle um, and, use, and inserting it um, into the muscle itself using the mechanical stimulus, the presence of the needle itself. Um, to stimulate that muscle that might be tight and might have a taut muscular band. Often the presence of the needle itself um, ends up uh, helping to release uh, tightness. And if you think about it as a, um, a very fine, very specific massage using a needle tip in the muscle to help relax that muscle is dry needling. Often it's employed by medical practitioners like ourselves, but also with uh, acupuncturists using their needles and, um, you know, those needles don't necessarily have to uh, have um, just like a hollow center for injecting anything. Um, these fusiform needles can be used for acupuncture or dry needling. Often in the medical um, providers uh, in, the, in Western medicine will use um, uh, the uh, sort of uh, uh, the injection needles and then also inject uh, some numbing medication along with it. It's been found in the literature that the uh, injection itself, the presence of that volume of fluid can also help relax the muscle. It doesn't have to be a medication. It could also be saline. Thank you. And how does an investment in just a good firm mattress solve low back pain? I think um, there's, there's probably a balance between firm, uh, firmness and softness for the mattress. So you definitely... I think the ideal um, mattress for each person is very is a very individualistic, um, you know, choice. Uh, you ultimately want a mattress that supports your spine without allowing it to uh, sustain sort of prolonged abnormal curves during the um, uh, over over the course of sleep overnight. So a firm mattress can be good to um, some degree, but too firm can actually also cause pressure points and. Um, maybe joint aches elsewhere that um, has your pelvis sort of tilted uh, too much overnight. And a too soft mattress just allows your spine to sink in. So the two extremes are probably um, not too good and somewhere in the middle. And where that, where that falls for each person is, is, uh, is an individual type of um, determination. I, I totally get that question. I'm like the princess in the pea with my hard mattress <laughs> and then my multiple soft layers on top. Yeah. So I feel you, whoever asked that question. Yeah. Um, if you, okay, this is a great question. This is very big picture here, but if you could create a big infrastructure program for the human body 
where a bunch of research money gets pumped into one area with a hope for breakthrough innovations that alleviate the most suffering. What would you pick to focus on, Peter Wu? <laughs> it's a big, big question. To help the human body. Is, yes. is that the, the yeah. main to area? Help, where would you, to, yeah, with the, to relieve the most suffering of the human body. Um, yeah, it's a very, uh, very great <laughs> question. It's a very hard question. But there's, um, yeah, I couldn't say that there's one, especially even in our field where we think about pain in so many different respects. Um, but, you know, pain is up there, I think, because it touches on so many different areas. And, you know, we, we, we mentioned, I mentioned that the REACH um, program here is, is really endeavoring to understand that, to relieve one thing. Um, it's, it's within the orthopedic area, but it's ultimately leads to pain. And so pain can affect across all sorts of medical conditions and not just orthopedics, but it could, uh, you know, affect folks after strokes. It can affect, um, you know, folks, yeah, you know, after, you know, um, uh, in, in socioeconomic, uh, dire straits. So, um, Pain because it's so abstract. Pain because it affects so many different areas. It's also partly why I, um, I went into the field of pain because it it's so diverse and it allows us to engage and touch on different, you know, a majority of the medical field. Our our uh, interactions with providers span um, uh, collaborating with neurologists, anesthesiologists. Uh, orthopedists, all the physical therapists, uh, complementary medicine um, practitioners. So I think um, there, there might be, um, uh, you know, a reasonable sort of um, a, uh, approach to addressing pain because it's so broad and, and reaches so many people. But that's, that's what just comes to mind. I couldn't say that that is like uh, my final answer. <laughs> No, that's a great question. It is hard. There's so many. It's actually interesting. There was an impact study several years ago where they looked at modern medicine, what had the most impact. Yeah. And in the last century, and it was the treatment of coronary artery disease was number one. Okay. Where people, if you're older, you remember mm-hmm. back in the eighties, someone had a heart attack and they would die. Now they, people get stinted, they go home the same day. It's like amazing. And then the number two thing was actually total joint replacement. Those orthopedic doctors can be excited that we've contributed. That if you think about it, if people had arthritis and they had pain, they became immobile. They couldn't function. They couldn't walk and they would die. And now we've replaced joints and people are up and moving and active. It's so important to stay active. So it's pretty um, amazing. It's that impactful. Um, and let's see, do we have time for one more question? Um, let me let's see. Their established framework for uh are there established frameworks for back school programs? Are there specific education topics, body mechanics, functional movements, psychology of pain that are indicated to be most effective? Are they just all features of a back school program? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think as, as more and more interest grows in addressing pain and back pain, the more we find that there are diverse approaches to back pain, uh, you know, to managing back pain. And so there are things like, um, you know, active release, McKenzie method, there are um, 
things like neuromuscular reprogramming and even um, institutions or clinics, um, for, you know, uh, based off of uh, functional restoration. Um, I, I couldn't say that there was something that, you know, that I know of that's specifically the, the, the go-to. Um, a lot of folks who end up having chronic pain, they, they end up finding what works best for them. Um, and that could be the most direct way with physical therapy or the most, some of the most esoteric sort of, sort of um, you know, very uh, nuanced, you know, niche type of practices that they swear by that, that is the only thing that helps them. So I think um, there's many approaches out there, but um, I would say at the same time, uh, there's, not a, is, there's not a lot of folks who know all the approaches because those who know the approaches really intimately are the folks that have chronic pain. And they unfortunately are the, the folks that, that know a lot. Um, so just like the, um, the question about what's the best mattress, I think there's not a, a really definitive answer as to what's the best approach. Well, I would love to thank everyone for participating tonight. Peter, your talk was amazing. And um, again, I learned so much listening to you every time. Um, some people have asked about contact to schedule with Dr. Wu. Um, it can be found on the UCSF orthopedic website. And uh, this, the number to schedule an appointment is uh, 415-353-2808. Um, you're always welcome to call if you are suffering from back pain. Dr. Wu is happy to see you. And uh, I know you like that. I'm pushing, pushing for you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but thank you all. <laughs> thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.